The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Oh, my brother, do you know what a loving Christ he is? Let me tell you from my own soul what I know of him. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. We're doing Spurgeon today. Charles Spurgeon spoke today's sermon on December 5th, 1858. The title of this specific sermon is Compel Them to Come In. Just a quick note before we jump into the episode, I want to talk a little bit about our catalog. When Troy and I started Revived Thoughts, there were a lot of things that made this project exciting to us. We were excited to uh, make these old sermons available in an a easy-to-get digital format, but also we were excited to bring some lesser-known people to light. You know, we have, we have hundreds of years of church history, and unless you're digging around in a library, a lot of these people and a lot of the truths that they preach are just being forgotten and lost in time. So when you're scrolling through the feed of Revive Thoughts episodes and you see that name you don't recognize, that's intentional. That, that's something that we, we, we found and we put in there because we feel like they have something to say. We feel like they have something that we need to hear. And that only comes from from that person in that time in that era. So if you see a name you don't recognize, give it a, give it a listen. You might you might find someone new that you like. Last time we did a Charles Spurgeon sermon, it was episode five of Revive Thoughts, the first season, and we interviewed uh, Philip Ort of the Spurgeon Center at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and we really focused on his uh, depression, his struggle with depression. But as we listened to his famous sermon, Compel Them to Come In, we really want to look at his gift for preaching. His effect on people is its really unlike anything you may see with any other preacher. And even today, like right now, to grow Revive Thoughts, one thing that we did is we joined a lot of social media groups. We post quotes. We talk to other people interested in this kind of area. Maybe you came over to the show from one of those groups. And you'll find that in these groups, these social media bubbles, no other name gets quoted quite like Charles Spurgeon. No other page has more likes his name even well over a hundred years after he died is still the reigning king of quotes and we're just kind of wondering is that because he's the best what's going on here yeah just as a quick recap he was born in 1834 and died in 1892 what spurgeon is probably most known for is being the head pastor of the metropolitan tabernacle in london uh, he earned the name the Prince of Preachers, and something that we want to look at today is just kind of examining that title, Prince of Preachers. Did he really earn that title? Was he, <laughs> was he that good, or is that is that something that's been romanticized with time? Is that something that we kind of look back on uh, fondly? So let's just kind of run the numbers, just from a pure statistics. He started very young, before he was even twenty. He had already preached over six hundred times. Now, in a very recent episode, we talked about Andrew Gray and how he was allowed to preach right after 20, and that was usually against the rules during that era when the Puritans were running the show. Yet, by 20, Spurgeon was already an advanced preacher, having 600 sermons under his belt. When Spurgeon first arrived at the church that would eventually become his his home church, the church that famously had 232 members when when he arrived, they were a bit cautious. It was a three month trial, so that they could they could kick him out if they didn't like him. And so, what started off as a little bit of uncertainty grew into a really loving relationship. Uh, the church would become what what I would consider to be the first like real mega church. Uh, I mean, it would it would have over 5,000 members consistently. And again, this is the mid-1800s, so that, I mean, this, this really just did, wasn't a thing back then. Spurgeon's largest crowd that he would ever preach to was 23,000 people. 23,000. And we talk about this some, uh, with, we talked about this a little bit with the revival preachers in an earlier episode, but it's important sometimes to just take a moment, you're hearing numbers, just imagine a crowd that large. 23,000. 
Uh, can you even put that many people together in a room in your head? You know, it's a stadium filled with people. Now, there's no air conditioner. There's no heater. There's no lights. There's no electricity. There's no cars getting them there. There's no buses, right? And they're all listening to one man, and he doesn't have a megaphone. He doesn't have a microphone. There's no audio equipment to get his voice heard. And yet there are 23,000 people there to listen to him speak. That's incredible. It, it, it doesn't matter. He's not even, he's not a king. He's not a queen. He's not a president. He's just a preacher. I really like D.L. Moody from this era. And the very first book that Moody Press ever published was one of Spurgeon's books. And it, it went on to sell a million copies. And this is in the 1800s. This is before the internet. So the word of mouth to, to spread this book around, you know, traveled by train. So a million copies is really impressive. By 1865, 25,000 of his sermons were being bought every week. And they were being translated into 20 different languages. And on top of this, his preaching style was kind of unique, too. He spoke very fast. He'd usually take one page of notes into the pulpit, but he'd speak for 40 minutes at 140 words per minute. That is extremely fast preaching for a very long time. And yet, despite that, he did it with a page of notes. That's pretty impressive. It was said that he spoke at so many speaking engagements that he probably would speak 10 times a week. I mean, just... If you take 10 times a week times by 52 weeks, you've got 520 different messages every week, every year, as far as we know. He would actually do something that I just try to imagine a modern preacher doing this. He asked regulars to skip a Sunday so newcomers could find a seat inside the church. I, imagine the headlines that would break if a modern-day preacher of a mega church somewhere said, I want you guys to skip the next Sunday so the new people can get a front-row seat. That would never happen, right? And yet Spurgeon was so interested in getting the gospel out to those who hadn't heard it, he didn't care. Um, one day, they had the entire regular congregation just leave so that the people waiting outside could come back, could come in so that they would have a chance to find seats, and the, pretty much the entire place just filled right back up. One of the neat things about looking back into the life of someone that was as influential as this is you get to see all of the kind of the eyewitness testimonies, all of the things that people uh, saw and encountered around Spurgeon. And like, for example, there's this testimony of a, of a guy who was working on a ladder outside of a, of a church building, just doing maintenance on it. And Spurgeon was at the church preparing for a sermon that he would do later on, but no one was there. He was just kind of getting sound checks, like 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 clapping and, and, and preaching, just to hear the, the sound of the room to kind of get acoustics to figure out what it's going to sound like once people are in there. And so one of the things that he was preaching as part of his sound check was, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And that carpenter working on the ladder heard that, and by his own confession, like that's the thing the Lord used to, to, to get into his life and to eventually lead him to, to Christ. And he came to Christ because of overhearing Spurgeon practicing for a sermon. There's another example of a woman who was buying butter. And at that time, they would wrap butter up in paper, I guess, different types of, of spare paper you had lying around. And the butter that she bought was wrapped in a sermon that Spurgeon had wrote and had been, you know, cycled around and distributed. And, and she read this, this sermon that was on her butter wrapper. And that's what God used to bring her to him. There's other stuff that happened too in his life. We won't go into all the details of every, this isn't really a biography episode. It's more just an effect episode. But when he was 10, a missionary was staying with his family, and, and it looked at him one day and just kind of said, you know, someday you're going to be a famous preacher and preach in England's largest church. And that's exactly what happened. But don't just get the idea, too, that this was all just almost like some supernatural gift that he just kind of walked into and never had to do anything with. The other side of this was Spurgeon never stopped working. He, it was said that he worked 18-hour days. David Livingston, a missionary and explorer who went around the world, asked Spurgeon, how is it that you do two persons' work every single day? And Spurgeon responded, there are two of us after all. So it, much like many of the amazing preachers in the series that we've talked about, these people, it, Spurgeon worked very hard. Whether you think he earned the name Prince of Preachers or not, like the numbers do tell us that he, at the very least, an incredibly influential preacher. And uh, I mean, I, it's, I, I think it's definitely through 
the power of of God. You know, you talk about preaching ten times a week. I feel like just stamina wise alone, you would you would need the help of of the Spirit to to power you and to guide you through that. So uh, it's it's evident that the Lord was definitely using him and working through him. And the sermon that we're about to listen to, uh, he preached it when he was 22 years old, and he's trying to compel people to come to Christ. And you'll notice he kind of begins preaching one way, and then he kind of shifts, and he, he changes his style of preaching. And he even says, if that doesn't convince you, let me try this. He's, he's trying to figure out what might speak to a person. If it's not one thing, then he'll shift and try it another way, because he's so dedicated to trying to get through to you with with the gospel. We talk about him preaching 10 times a week. He didn't preach 10 times a week for himself. He preached that because because he wanted to use every opportunity he could to share the gospel with others. And we we see this kind of preaching style kind of emulated in his life to where if something is not working in his approach to you, he'll, he'll shift and he'll try another way. And with the benefit of hindsight with the benefit of being able to look back it's it's incredibly humbling to see how he represented that with his life with how he would try to find out what what resonates with you with you you know everyone learns different everyone understands things differently and he try to find out what that is and i know troy has has some thoughts about this after the show so i don't want to steal his thunder but it's also i found really convicting for believers this idea to try again to compel It's not something that I feel is very much a part of our culture nowadays. I feel in such a hurry to go out and obey this commandment this morning by compelling those to come in who are now delaying in the highways and hedges that I cannot wait for an introduction but must at once set about my business. Hear then, O you that are strangers to the truth as it is in Jesus, hear then the message that I have to bring to you. You have fallen, fallen in your father Adam. You have fallen also in yourselves by your daily sin and your constant iniquity. You have provoked the anger of the Most High And as assuredly as you have sinned, so certainly must God punish you if you persevere in your iniquity. For the Lord is a God of justice and will by no means spare the guilty. But have you not heard, has it not long been spoken in your ears that God in his infinite mercy has devised a way where, without any infringement upon his honour, he can have mercy upon you, the guilty and the undeserving. To you I speak, and my voice is for you, O sons of men. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, has descended from heaven and was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Begotten of the Holy Ghost, he was born of the Virgin Mary, He lived in this world a life of exemplary holiness and of the deepest suffering, till at last he gave himself up to die for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And now the plan of salvation is simply declared for you. Whosoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. For you who have violated all the precepts of God and have disdained his mercy and dared his vengeance, there is yet mercy proclaimed. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And whosoever comes to him, he will in no way cast out. For he is able also to save even the worst of them that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, all that God asks of you, and this he gives you, is that you will simply look at his bleeding, dying son, 
and trust your souls in the hands of him whose name alone can save from death and hell. Is it not a marvelous thing that the proclamation of this gospel does not receive the unanimous consent of men? One would think that as soon as this was preached, that whosoever believes will have eternal life, every one of you, casting away every man his sins and his iniquities, would lay hold on Jesus Christ and look alone to his sins. But alas, such is the desperate evil of our nature, such the pernicious depravity of our character, that this message is despised. The invitation to the gospel feast is rejected, and there are many of you who are this day enemies of God by wicked works, enemies to the God who preaches Christ to you today, enemies to him who sent his son to give his life a ransom for many. It is strange, yet nevertheless, it is fact and demands the necessity for the command of the text. Compel them to come in. Children of God, you who have believed, I will have little or nothing to say to you this morning. I'm going straight to my business. I am going after those who will not come, those that are in the byways and hedges, and God going with me, it is my duty now to fulfill this commandment, compel them to come in. First, I must find you out. Secondly, I will go to work to compel you to come in. First, I must find you out. If you read the verses that precede the text, you will find an amplification of this command. Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the lame, the halt and the blind. And then afterwards, go out into the highways. Bring in the vagrants, the highwaymen, and into the hedges. Bring in those that have no resting place for their heads and are lying under the hedges to rest. Bring them in also, and compel them to come in. Yet I see you this morning, you that are poor, and I compel you to come in. You are poor in circumstances, but this is no barrier to the kingdom of heaven. For God has not exempted from his grace the man that shivers in rags, and who is destitute of bread. In fact, if there be any distinction made, the distinction is on your side and for your benefit. To you is the word of salvation sent, for the poor have the gospel preached to them. But especially, I must speak to you who are poor spiritually. You have no faith, you have no virtue, you have no good work, you have no grace, and what is poverty worse still, you have no hope. Ah, my master has sent you a gracious invitation. Come and welcome to the marriage feast of his love. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Come, I must lay hold upon you, though you are defiled with foulest filth, and though you have nothing but rags upon your back, though your own righteousness has become as filthy clouts, yet must I lay hold upon you and invite you first, and even compel you to come in. And now I see you again, you are not only poor, but you are maimed. There was a time when you thought you could work out your own salvation without God's help, when you could perform good works, attend to ceremonies, and get to heaven by yourselves. But now you are maimed. The sword of the law has cut off your hands, and now you can work no longer. You say with bitter sorrow, the best performance of my hands dares not appear before your throne. You have lost all power now to obey the law. You feel that when you would do good, evil is present with you. You are maimed. You have given up as a forlorn hope all attempt to save yourself because you are maimed and your arms are gone. But you are worse off than that. For if you could not work your way to heaven, yet you could walk your way there along the road by faith, 
but you are maimed in the feet as well as in the hands. You feel that you cannot believe, that you cannot repent, that you cannot obey the stipulations of the gospel. You feel that you are utterly undone, powerless in every regard to do anything that can be pleasing to God. In fact, you are crying out, oh, could I but believe, then all would easy be. I would but cannot, Lord, relieve. My help must come from you. To you I am also sent. Before you I am to lift up the blood-stained banner of the cross. To you I am to preach this gospel. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And to you I cry, whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. There is yet another class. You are halt. You are halting between two opinions. You are sometimes seriously inclined, and at other time, worldly gaiety calls you away. What little process you do make in religion is but a limp. You have a little strength, but that is so little that you make but painful progress. Ah, limping brother, for you also is the word of salvation sent. Though you halt between two opinions, the master sends me to you with this message. How long will you halt between two opinions? If God be God, serve him. If Baal be God, serve him. Consider your ways, set your house in order, for you will die and not live. Because I will do this, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Halt no longer, but decide for God and his truth. And yet I see another class, the blind. Yes, you cannot see yourselves, that think yourselves good when you are full of evil, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, darkness for light and light for darkness. To you I am sent. You blind souls that cannot see your lost estate, that do not believe that sin is so exceedingly sinful as it is, and who will not be persuaded to think that God is a just and righteous God. To you I am sent. To you too that cannot see the Saviour, that see no beauty in him that you should desire him, who see no excellence in virtue, no glories in religion, no happiness in serving God, no delight in being his children, to you also am I sent. I, who am I not sent if I take my text seriously? For it goes further than this. It not only gives a particular description so that each individual case may be met, but afterwards it makes a general sweep and says, go into the highways and hedges. Here we bring in all ranks and conditions of men. My Lord upon his horse in the highway and the woman trudging about her business, the thief waylaying the traveler. All these are in the highway and they are all to be compelled to come in. And there away in the hedges there lie some poor souls whose refuge of lies are swept away, and who are seeking not to find some little shelter for their weary heads. To you also are we sent this morning. This is the universal command. Compel them to come in. Now, I pause after having described the character. I pause to look at the Herculean labor that lies before me. Melanchthon said it well. Old Adam was too strong for young Melanchthon. As well might a little child seek to compel a Samson as I seek to lead a sinner to the cross of Christ. And yet my master sends me about the errand. Lo, I see the great mountain before me of human depravity and stolid indifference. 
but by faith I cry. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. Does my master say, compel them to come in? Then, though the sinner be like Samson and I a child, I will lead him with a thread. If God says, do it, if I attempt it in faith, it will be done. And if with a groaning, struggling and weeping heart, I seek this day to compel sinners to come to Christ, the sweet compulsions of the Holy Spirit will go with every word, and some indeed will be compelled to come in. Second, and now to the work, directly to the work. Unconverted, unreconciled, unregenerate men and women, I am to compel you to come in. Permit me first of all to accost you in the highways of sin and tell you over again my errand. The King of Heaven this morning sends a gracious invitation to you. He says, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, but rather that he should turn to me and live. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they will be whiter than snow. Dear brother, it makes my heart rejoice to think that I should have such good news to tell you. And yet I confess my soul is heavy. Because I see you do not think it good news but turn away from it, and do not give it due regard. Permit me to tell you what the king has done for you. He knew your guilt. He foresaw that you would ruin yourself. He knew that his justice would demand your blood. And in order that this difficulty might be escaped, that his justice might have its due, that you might yet be saved. Jesus Christ has died. Will you, just for a moment, glance at this picture? You see that man there on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. You see this next, you see that miserable sufferer tied to a pillar and lashed with terrible scourges till the shoulder bones are seen like white islands in the midst of a sea of blood. Again, you see this third picture. It is the same man hanging on the cross with hands extended and with feet nailed fast, dying, groaning, bleeding. I thought the picture spoke and said, it is finished. Now, all this has Jesus Christ of Nazareth done in order that God might consistently, with his justice, pardon sin and the message to you this morning is this believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved that is trust him renounce your works and your ways and set your heart alone on this man who gave himself for sinners well, brother, I have told you the message. What do you say? Do you turn away? You tell me it is nothing to you. You cannot hear it and that you will hear me by and by, but you will go your way this day and attend to your farm and your merchandise. Stop, brother. I was not told merely to tell you and then go about my business. No, I am told to compel you 
to come in and permit me to observe to you before I further go that there is one thing I can say and to which God is my witness this morning that I am in earnest with you in my desire that you should comply with this command of God. You may despise your own salvation, but I do not despise it. You may go away and forget what you will hear, but you will please to remember that the things I now say cost me many a groan. My inmost soul is speaking out to you, my poor brother. When I beseech you, by him that lives and was dead and is alive forevermore, consider my master's message, which he bids me now to address you. But do you spurn it? Do you still refuse it? Then I must change my tone a minute. I will not merely tell you the message and invite you, as I do with all earnestness and sincere affection. I will go further. Sinner, in God's name, I command you to repent and believe. Do you ask me where I get my authority? I am an ambassador of heaven. My credentials, some of them secret and in my own heart, and others of them open before you this day in the seals of my ministry, sitting and standing in this hall, where God has given me many souls for my hire. As God, the everlasting one, has given me a commission to preach his gospel, I command you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not on my own authority, but on the authority of him who said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and then annex this solemn sanction. He that believes and is baptized will be saved, but he that believes not will be damned. Reject my message, and remember, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore a punishment, suppose you, who has trodden under foot the Son of God. An ambassador is not to stand below the man with whom he deals, for we stand higher. If the minister chooses to take his proper rank, girded with the omnipotence of God and anointed with his holy unction, he is to command men and speak with all authority, compelling them to come in. Command, exhort, rebuke with all long-suffering. But do you turn away and say you will not be commanded? Then again will I change my note. If that avails not, all other means will be tried. My brother, I come to you simple of speech, and I exhort you to flee to Christ. Oh, my brother, do you know what a loving Christ he is? Let me tell you from my own soul what I know of him. I too once despised him. He knocked at the door of my heart and I refused to open it. He came to me times without number, morning by morning and night by night. He checked me in my conscience and spoke to me by his spirit. And when at last the thunders of the law prevailed in my conscience, I, I thought that Christ was cruel and unkind. Oh, I can never forgive myself that I should have thought so ill of him. But what a loving reception did I have when I went to him. I thought he would smite me, but his hand was not clenched in anger, but opened wide in mercy. I thought for sure that his eyes would dart lightning flashes of wrath upon me, but instead, they were full of tears. He fell upon my neck and kissed me. He took off my rags and did clothe me with his righteousness and caused my soul to sing aloud for joy. While in the house of my heart and in the house of his church there was music and dancing, 
because his son that he had lost was found, and he that was dead was made alive. I exhort you then to look to Jesus Christ and to be lightened. Sinner, you will never regret. I will be bondsman for my master that you will never regret it. You will have no sigh to go back to your state of condemnation. You will go out of Egypt and will go into the promised land and will find it flowing with milk and honey. The trials of the Christian life you will find heavy, but you will find grace will make them light. And as for the joys and delights of being a child of God, if I lie this day, you will charge me with it in the days to come. If you will taste and see that the Lord is good, I am not afraid that you will find that he is not only good, but better than human lips ever can describe. I know not what arguments to use with you. I appeal to your own self-interests. Oh, my poor friend, would it not be better for you to be reconciled to the God of heaven than to be his enemy? What are you getting by opposing God? Are you the happier for being his enemy? Answer, pleasure seeker. Have you found delights in that cup? Answer me, self-righteous man. Have you found rest for the sole of your foot in all your works? O oh, you that goes about to establish your own righteousness, I charge you, let conscience speak. Have you found it to be a happy path? Ah, oh, my friend, why does your money go and not into bread and your labor for that which satisfies not? Listen diligently to me and eat that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. I exhort you by everything that is sacred and solemn, everything that is important and eternal, flee for your lives, don't look behind you, stay not in all the plain, stay not until you have proved and found an interest in the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood which cleanses us all from sin. Are you still cold and indifferent? Will not the blind man permit me to lead him to the feast? Will not my maimed brother put his hand upon my shoulder and permit me to assist him to the banquet? Will not the poor man allow me to walk side by side with you? Must I use some stronger words? Must I use some other compulsion to compel you to come in? Sinners, this one thing I am resolved upon this morning. If you are not saved, you will be without excuse. You, from the gray haired down to the tender age of childhood, if you this day do not lay hold on Christ, your blood will be on your own head. If there is power in man to bring his fellow, as there is when a man is helped by the Holy Spirit, that power will be exercised this morning. God helping me. Come, I am not to be put off by your rebuffs. If my exhortation fails, I must come to something else. My brother, I beg you. I entreat you, stop and consider, do you know what it is you are rejecting this morning? You are rejecting Christ, your only saviour. Other foundation can no man lay. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. My brother, I cannot bear that you should do this. For I remember what you are forgetting. The day is coming when you will want a saviour. It is not long until weary months will have ended and your strength begins to decline. Your pulse will fail you 
your strength will depart, and you and the grim monster, death, must face each other. What will you do in the swellings of Jordan without a saviour? Deathbeds are stony things without the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an awful thing to die anyhow. He that has the best hope and the most triumphant faith finds that death is not a thing to laugh at. It is a terrible thing to pass from the seen to the unseen, from the mortal to the immortal, from time to eternity. And you will find it hard to go through the iron gates of death without the sweet wings of angels to conduct you to the portals of the skies. It will be a hard thing to die without Christ. I cannot help thinking of you. I see you committing suicide this morning. And I picture myself standing at your bedside and hearing your cries and knowing that you are dying without hope. I cannot bear that. I think I am standing by your coffin now and looking into your clay cold face and saying, this man despised Christ and neglected the great salvation. I think what bitter tears I will weep then if I think that I have been unfaithful to you and how those eyes fast closed in death will seem to chide me and say, Minister, I attended the music hall, but you were not in earnest with me. You amused me, you preached to me, but you did not plead with me. You did not know what Paul meant when he said, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. I entreat you, let this message enter your heart for another reason. I picture myself standing at the bar of God. As the Lord lives, the day of judgment is coming. You believe that? You are not an infidel. Your conscience would not permit you to doubt the scripture. Perhaps you may have pretended to do so, but you cannot. You feel there must be a day when God will judge the world in righteousness. I see you standing in the midst of that throng and the eye of God is fixed on you. It seems to you that he is not looking anywhere else but only upon you and he summons you before him and he reads your sins and he cries, depart you cursed into everlasting fire in hell. My hero, I cannot bear to think of you in that position. It seems as if every hair on my head must stand on end to think of any hero of mine being damned. Will you picture yourselves in that position? The word has gone forth, depart you cursed. Do you see the pit as it opens to swallow you up? Do you listen to the shrieks and the yells of those who have preceded you to that eternal lake of torment? Instead of picturing the scene, I turn to you with words of the inspired prophet. And I say, who among us will dwell with a devouring fire? Who among us will dwell with everlasting burnings? Oh, my brother, I cannot let you put away religion. No, I think of what is to come after death. I should be destitute of all humanity if I should see a person about to poison himself and did not dash away the cup, or if I saw another about to plunge from London Bridge, if I did not assist in preventing him from doing so. And I should be worse than a fiend if I did not now, with all love and kindness and earnestness, beseech you to lay hold on eternal life, to labour not for the meat that perishes, but for the meat that endures into eternal life. Some 
hyper-Calvinist would tell you I am wrong in so doing. I cannot help it. I must do it. As I must stand before my judge at last, I feel that I will not make full proof of my ministry unless I entreat with many tears that you would be saved, that you would look to Jesus Christ and receive his glorious salvation. But does not this avail? Are all our entreaties lost upon you? Do you turn a deaf ear? Then again, I will change my note. Sinner, I have pleaded with you as a man pleaded with his friend, and were it for my own life, I could not speak more earnestly this morning than I do speak concerning yours. I did feel earnest about my own soul, but not a whit more than I do about the souls of my congregation this morning. And therefore, if you put away these entreaties, I have something else. I must threaten you. You will not always have such warnings as these. A day is coming when hushed will be the voice of every gospel minister, at least for you, for your ear will be cold in death. It will not be any more threatening it will be the fulfillment of the threatening. There will be no promise, no proclamations of pardon and of mercy, no peace-speaking blood, but you will be in the land where the Sabbath is all swallowed up in the everlasting nights of misery and where the preaching of the gospel are forbidden because they would be unavailing. I charge you then, Listen to this voice that now addresses your conscience. For if not, God will speak to you in his wrath and say to you in his hot displeasure, I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no man regarded. Therefore, I will mock at your calamity. I will laugh when your fear comes. Sinner, I threaten you again. Remember, it is but a short time you may have to hear these warnings. You imagine that your life will be long, but do you know how short it is? Have you ever tried to think how frail you are? Did you ever see a body when it has been cut in pieces by the surgeon? Did you ever see such a marvelous thing as the human frame? Strange, a harp of a thousand strings should keep in tune so long. Let but one of those cords be twisted. Let but a mouthful of food go in the wrong direction, and you may die. The slightest chance, as we have it, may send you swift to death when God wills it. Strong men have been killed by the smallest and lightest accident. And so may you. In the chapel, in the house of God, men have dropped down dead. How often do we hear of men falling in our streets, rolling out of time into eternity by some sudden stroke? And are you sure that heart of yours is quite sound? Is the blood circulating with all accuracy? Are you quite sure of that? And if it be so, how long will it be? Or perhaps there are some of you here that will never see Christmas Day. It may be the mandate has gone forth already. Set your house in order, for you will die and not live. Out of this vast congregation, I might with accuracy tell you how many will be dead in a year. But certain it, it, it is, that the whole of us will never meet together again in any one assembly. Some out of this vast crowd, perhaps some two or three, will depart until the new year will be ushered in. I remind you then, my brother, that either the gate of salvation may be shut or else you may be out of the place where the gate of mercy stands. Come then. Let the threatening have power with you. I do not threaten because I would alarm without cause. 
but in hopes that a brother's threatening may drive you to the place where God has prepared the feast of the gospel. And now, must I turn hopelessly away? Have I exhausted all that I can say? No. I will come to you again. Tell me what it is, my brother, that keeps you from Christ. I hear one say, Oh, sir, it is because I feel myself too guilty. That cannot be, my friend. That cannot be. But, sir, I am the chief of sinners. Friend, you are not. The chief of sinners died and went to heaven many years ago. His name was Saul of Tarsus, afterwards called Paul the Apostle. He was the chief of sinners. I know he spoke the truth. No, but you say, still, I am too vile. You cannot be viler than the chief of sinners. You must at least be second worst. Even supposing you are the worst now alive, you are second worst, for he was chief. But suppose you are the worst. Is not that the very reason why you should come to Christ? The worse a man is, the more reason he should go to the hospital or physician. The more poor you are, the more reason you should accept the charity of another. Now Christ does not want any merits of yours. He gives freely. The worse you are, the more welcome you are. But let me ask you a question. Do you think you will ever get better by stopping away from Christ? If so, you know very little as yet of the way of salvation at all. No, sir. The longer you stay, the worse you will grow. Your hope will grow weaker. Your despair will grow, become stronger. The nail with which Satan has fastened you will be more firmly clenched, and you will be less hopeful than ever. Come, I beseech you. Recollect, there is nothing to be gained by delay, but by delay everything may be lost. But, cries another, I feel I cannot believe. No, my friend, and you never will believe if you look first at your believing. Remember, I have not come to invite you to faith, but have come to invite you to Christ. But you say, what is the difference? Why just this? <laughs> if you first of all say, I want to believe a thing, you never do it. But your first inquiry must be, what is this thing that I am to believe? Then will faith come as the consequence of that search. Our first business has not to do with faith, but with Christ. Come. I beseech you on Calvary's mount and see the cross. Behold the Son of God, he who made the heavens and the earth, dying for your sins. Look to him. Is there not power in him to save? Look at his face, so full of pity. Is there not love in his heart to prove him willing to save? Sure, sinner, the, the sight of Christ will help you to believe. Do not believe first and then go to Christ, or else your faith will be a worthless thing. Go to Christ without any faith and cast yourself upon him, sink or swim. But I hear another cry. Oh, sir, you do not know how often I have been invited, how long I have rejected the Lord. I do not know, and I do not want to know. All I know is that my master has sent me to compel you to come in. So come along with you now. You may have rejected a thousand invitations. Don't make this the thousand and first. You have been up to the house of God, and you have only been gospel-hardened. But do I not see a tear in your eye? Come, my brother, don't be hardened by this morning's sermon. O Spirit of the living God, come and melt this heart, 
for it has never been melted, and compel him to come in. I cannot let you go on such idle excuses of that. If you have lived so many years slighting Christ, there are so many reasons why you should not slight him. But did I hear you whisper that this was not a convenient time? Then what must I say to you? When will that convenient time come? Will it come when you're in hell? Will that time be convenient? Will it come when you're on your dying bed and the death throttle is in your throat? Will it come then? Or when the burning sweat is scalding your brow and then again when the cold clammy sweat is there, will those be convenient times? When pains are racking you and you're on the borders of the tomb? No, sir. This morning is the convenient time. May God make it so. Remember, I have no authority to ask you to come to Christ tomorrow. The master has given you no invitation to come to him next Tuesday. The invitation is today, if you will hear his voice harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For the spirit says today, come now and let us reason together. Why should you put it off? It may be the last warning you will ever have. Put it off and you may never weep again in chapel. You may never have so earnest a discourse addressed to you. You may not be pleaded with as I would plead with you now. You may go away and God may say, he is given up to idols, let him alone. He will throw the reins upon your neck and then mark, your course is sure but it is sure damnation and swift destruction. And now again, is it all in vain? Will you not now come to Christ? Then what more can I do? I have but one more resort, and that will be tried. I can be permitted to weep for you. I can be allowed to pray for you. You will scorn the address if you like. You will laugh at the preacher. Call him fanatic if you will. He will not chide you. He will bring no accusation against you to the great judge. Your offence, so far as he is concerned, is forgiven before it was committed. But you will remember that the message that you are rejecting this morning is a message from one who loves you and is given to you also by the lips of one who loves you. You will recollect that you may play your soul away with the devil, that you may listlessly think it is a matter of no importance, but there lives at least one who is in earnest about your soul, and one who, before he came here, wrestled with his God for strength to preach to you, and who, when he has gone from this place, will not forget his hearers of this morning. I say again, when words fail us, we can give tears, for words and tears are the arms with which gospel ministers compel men to come in. You do not know, and I suppose could not believe, how anxious a man whom God has called to the ministry feels about his congregation, and especially about some of them. I heard just the other day of a young man who attended here a long time ago, and his father's hope was that he would be brought to Christ. He became acquainted, however, with an infidel, and now he neglects his business and lives in daily course of sin. I saw his father's poor, worn face. I did not ask him to tell me the story himself, for I felt it was raking up trouble and opening a sore. I fear sometimes that good man's grey hairs may be brought with sorrow to the grave. Young men, you do not pray for yourselves, but your mothers wrestle for you. You will not think of your own souls, but your father's anxiety is exercised for you. I have been at prayer meetings when I have heard children of God pray there. And they could not have prayed with more earnestness and more intensity of anguish if they had each of them been seeking their own soul's salvation. And 
Is it not strange that we should be ready to move heaven and earth for your salvation and that still you should have no thought for yourself, for yourselves? And is it not strange that we should be ready to move heaven and earth for your salvation and that still you should have no thought for yourselves, no regard to eternal things? Now I turn for one moment to some here. There are some of you here, members of Christian churches, who make a profession of religion. But, unless I am mistaken in you, and I will be happy if I am, your profession is a lie. You do not live up to it. You dishonor it. You can live in the perpetual practice of absenting yourselves from God's house, if not in sins worse than that. Now I ask such of you who do not adorn the doctrine of God your saviour, do you imagine that you can call me your pastor, and yet that my soul cannot tremble over you and in secret weep for you? Again, I say it may, may be but little concern to you how you defile the garments of your Christianity, but it is a great concern to God's hidden ones who sigh and cry and groan for the iniquities of the professors of Zion. Now does there remain anything else to the minister besides weeping and prayer? Yes, there is one more thing. God has given to his servants not the power of regeneration, but he has given them something akin to it. It is impossible for any man to regenerate his neighbor, and yet how are men born to God? Does not the apostle say of such a one that he was begotten by him in his bonds? Now the minister has a power given to him of God to be considered both the father and the mother of those born to God. For the apostle said he travailed in birth for souls till Christ was formed in them. What can we do then? We can now appeal to the spirit. I know I have preached the gospel that I have preached it earnestly. I challenge my master to honor his own promise. He has said it will not return unto me void, and it will not. It is in his hands, not mine. I cannot compel you, but you, O Spirit of God, who have the key of the heart, you can compel. Did you ever notice in that chapter of the Revelation where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. A few verses before, the same person is described as he who has the key of David. So that if knocking will not avail, he has the key and can and will come in. Now if the knocking of an earnest minister doesn't prevail with you this morning, there remains still that secret opening of the heart so that you will be compelled. I thought it my duty to labor with you as though I must do it. Now I throw it into my master's hands. It cannot be his will that we should travail in birth and yet not bring forth spiritual children. It is with him. He is master of the heart and the day will declare it. That some of you, constrained by sovereign grace, have become the willing captives of the all-conquering Jesus and have bowed your hearts to him through the sermon this morning. There are so many things about the sermon, it's almost hard to get them all out. For starters, I feel like this is Charles Spurgeon's version of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He's really going after people, but I I get that passion, right? He wants them to come to Christ. You know, in his biography, we talked about how he spoke 10 times a week, and I thought about it, and it was just, 
He was preaching to people 10 times a week. But if we just shared the gospel with somebody or just shared God with somebody 10 times a week, how different would our lives look? And that's a lot. Maybe that's a big number. It sounds a little legalistic. But look at the way he, in this sermon, just constantly shifted how he was going to approach people. One minute, he's like, look how holy God is. Next minute, he's like, look how much God loves you. Next minute, he's like, I command you to do it, right? He's doing everything he can to reach out to people. And I've shared the gospel with different people before. And usually when we have that moment where I tell them about the love of Jesus and we talk about it and then it kind of dies down, I never thought before, well, I should try approaching them from a different angle and then a different angle and then a different angle after that until I get an angle that kind of works. It's this weird thing that I never thought of doing, yet you see it lived out in this sermon. And I was really challenged, honestly, to be sharing the gospel more, to be looking for opportunities more, and to be willing to change my approach even with the same person so that I'm not laying anything back, basically. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Dave Wakefield. Hey, have you visited RevivedThoughts.com lately? You should check it out. You can see transcripts for this episode and all of our episodes on RevivedThoughts.com. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Revived Thoughts. And if you did, a a real way that could help the show is just, and it's going to sound kind of funny, but just pull out your phone. Maybe think of one person you could text the show or a couple people who is into this kind of thing, maybe friends of yours from church, from school, people you you could have a deeper conversation with and just text us to them and say, hey, I thought of you when I heard this episode. When they get to this portion of the episode, they'll think, oh, they thought of me when they heard this part of the show. That's nice. And so to say, I'm going to text this to you. Here's a link to this episode by Charles Spurgeon. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. And uh, this is just a really nice way to tell others about what we're doing. Everybody sees texts and answers texts or, or messenger or whatever way you talk to people. And the other thing is true too, and this is a fact, if every single person did that and every single person listened, the show would technically double just like that, which would be pretty cool. This is Troy and Jill, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.